So it's good to see so many kids going out to kids' church, and uh, man, I'm thankful for our children's workers and what they do each and every week to uh, instill the Word of God into our children and, and just do such wonderful work there. Speaking of kids, if you walk around the building today or even outside, you may notice that cameras have been installed. We're always working to make our facilities safe and secure, and uh, we've taken that step to install security cameras in our kids' classrooms downstairs, as well as all the perimeter exits and things of that nature. So if you see those, don't worry. Uh, we're not spying on you. We're just uh, making sure that we are keeping everybody safe, and they're actually not even working yet. Their full functionality won't be begin until next Sunday. So uh, they, they'll finish installation this coming week. So we're Excited about that. That's just going to continue to help us to, uh, to better do what we have been called to do, and that is to uh, love people, and while they're here, keep them safe. So I want to invite you to take your Bible, if you will, and turn with me to Revelation chapter 1. That's amazing how the last song that we just sang, Sing a Hallelujah, uh, really just a little Hebrew lesson. He, hallelujah is Hebrew for praise God. And so that song is about being able to praise God in the midst of the storm. Being able to praise God literally in the midst of any facet of life, any aspect of life. And we, the Bible tells us is that God is always with us. He's always there watching over us. He's always protecting. He's always providing. He's always nurturing and growing us and, and, and speaking to us. And uh, one of my pastor friends I saw on Twitter last night, his prayer uh, challenge to other pastors was to just simply pray that this morning the Spirit of God would stir the people of God. And so that's one of the prayers that I've had this morning for you and for us as we've gathered this morning. But also, as we gather today, just to be reminded of His presence in our life. We've sung about it in that song and the other songs. And we're going to again see it in this passage that we have before us. God is with us in the good times and the bad times. I think sometimes we forget that God walks with us in the valley. I think because things get so difficult and we begin to, to kind of close our eyes to the reality of what's going on around us because of the harshness of it, that we begin to think that God's left us. But that's not true at all. And we're going to see that in this passage again this morning. Look with me, Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 9, reading through verse 20. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one, like a son of man, <clears throat> clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like wo white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. 
As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. What we see in this passage is that Jesus is in the midst of his church as he sovereignly upholds her. You see that? Jesus is standing there, verse 13, in the midst of the seven churches, and he's holding the seven angels in his hand. I mean, what a tremendous comfort this must have been for the Apostle John, who's on the island of Patmos. What an incredible encouragement this had to have been to the seven churches that this letter is being sent to. Right there in the middle of their pain, right there in the middle of their heartache, right there in the middle of their suffering and difficulty, Jesus was standing with them. Reminds me of the fourth grade boy who used to walk back and forth to school each day. It's back when kids used to do that. The elementary school was only about a half mile from this boy's house, and, and so it wasn't a big deal to go to school in the morning and come home in the afternoon, and, except for the handful of sixth grade boys that were bullies, rode around on their bikes in the neighborhood and liked to terrorize their fellow classmates and fellow students at their school. They liked to go and chase these kids that were walking and they would uh, do everything they could to, to, to instill fear into the hearts. They would shove them down and, and, and knock them over by riding too close to them. They would try to get them to be scared and run home. They enjoyed creating fear. They were a little bunch of sadists is what they were. One afternoon as this fourth grade boy was walking home from school, uh, this pack of bullies came around the street corner and began to chase him. It was only about 100 yards from his house, and so since he was all alone, he couldn't stand and necessarily fight such a large group of, of bullies, and so he takes off running to his house. Usually, he would come home to an empty house, but on this particular day, as he's running toward his home, he sees that his father's truck is in the driveway. So as he neared the house and the pack of the bullies was about to catch up with him, the boy began to cry out, Dad, Dad, come help, come help. He was scared to death. Then the boy's dad stepped out onto their front porch. And you can imagine what happens to the pack of bullies. They turn tail and scatter. The fear that overwhelmed the boy was gone. In its place, there was the assurance that everything was going to be all right because dad was there. According to John here, he's on the island of Patmos. This is a small, rocky island, about 10 miles long, about 5 miles wide. It's there in the Aegean Sea, about 40 miles west to southwest of the ancient city of Miletus. This island served as an important navigational point. When ships would go from Ephesus to Rome, they used this as a point of reference. It was also uh, a, 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 an island that was used for uh, authorities to put their prisoners on, those that were basically being exiled for their crimes or the accusations brought against them. John here tells us that he's on this island on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He had been exiled to this island because of his commitment to the word of God, because of the preaching of the gospel and the testimony of Jesus Christ. We know from history that emperor worship was prevalent in the Roman Empire. So John's biblical convictions and his preaching were antithetical to the pluralism of the culture of Rome. While John's exile here resulted from him being a Christ follower, as we look back at history, we don't really see a broad emperor-wide or empire-wide type of persecution. It was much more in a local uh, context, but John here is exiled because of 
the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. We see from the very beginning there in the book of Acts, we see that, that many times in these localities, the people who would stood against the preaching of the gospel would come and make an accusation of sedition against believers and bring them before the authorities. That's what more than likely is taking place here with the apostle John. It seems that someone accused him of sedition before the governor of Asia, and thus he was exiled. And so he receives this vision, and Jesus tells him to send this letter, to send this message to the seven churches. The letters here to the seven churches reveal that persecution was being experienced on a local level. We're going to get that in the coming weeks. We're going to see that, for instance, the Ephesian church, and there in the early part of chapter 2, was enduring the persecution and the tribulation. We see that the church in Smyrna was warned of upcoming imprisonments. Jesus tells them that there's things about to happen to you. You need to prepare yourselves. And then we see in chapter 2, verse 13, that in the city of Pergamum, amongst that church, a brother named Antipas had been killed. And so there was persecution. There was tribulation taking place. It was on a local basis, not empire-wide at this time, but nonetheless, severe and difficult. And so it's into this setting that Jesus here reveals himself to John. In the midst of this glorious encounter, what we looked at last week when we looked into the person of Jesus and what John saw there, we discover a comforting scene. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. A comforting scene. Jesus is present. Anybody need Jesus to be present in their context today? Anybody need Jesus to be present in the difficulties that you're dealing with even this week? You've had loved ones pass away. You've got family members who've had surgery. You're dealing with financial issues, relational issues, family issues. No matter what it is, we all have difficulties in life. But the good news, the comforting news, is that Jesus walks with you in those times. Today... I think we, it's fair to say that it's somewhat easy to be a Christian and to follow Jesus in America. I would say it's fairly easy because no one is physically threatening you over your faith, right? We don't have in America, typically, we don't have in America someone coming to you by force and saying, if you don't recant your faith, if you don't throw your Bible away, if you don't stop preaching the gospel and telling people about Jesus, I will take this gun or I will take this machete and I will end you. We don't have that message in America, by and large. You don't go to jail for having a Bible. I believe this coming week is bring your Bible to school day. And I hope our public school kids will take your Bible to school with you and, and stand up for the gospel, stand up for your faith. I hope you homeschool kids will take your Bible off the shelf at your school and read it and tell your mom about Jesus as well. That's a joke. You can laugh about that. It's not a joke if you got to tell them about it. you got to inform that it's funny. But you know what? It's not like that in so many places around the world. Few of us are going to get on a plane in a couple days. We're going to fly to South Asia and, uh, and, and that area of the world. It can be very dangerous to be open with your Christian faith. But in America, it's not so. It's relatively safe. However, persecution is still present. It's a little different here in America. Here we face the pressure to simply just be quiet. Keep your convictions to yourself. Don't become fanatical about your faith in Jesus Christ. Give in to the pressure 
to be conformed to the humanistic philosophies of our own culture. That's what we hear. They say it's, it's okay to be a follower of Jesus. It's okay to believe you're going to go to heaven. It's okay to believe the gospel. Just don't get crazy with it. That's what we hear from our culture. The moment you stand up against any cultural movement in favor of the word of God and its teaching, what happens in our culture is you are immediately shouted down and marginalized. Nonetheless, as disciples, we are called to be witnesses for Jesus. We're commanded to make disciples for Christ. And so I, I want to take this passage this morning, and if I can, and I want to encourage you with it, because I want to talk about this comforting scene that we see here. I, I want to remind you of three things about the Lord and his church. First of all, I want you to see a brotherly partnership that John speaks of. Look at verse 9. He says, I, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John here clues us into something that we need to be reminded of. I've already mentioned it, but let me just clue you in a little bit more clearly. Tribulation is the lot of God's people, right? You need to understand this. Tribulation is the lot of God's people. Neil McClendon, a, a pastor in Texas, he used to be a, uh, an evangelist. He traveled and did a lot of student camps when I was in teenage years and in youth ministry myself. I remember one year at our student camp, Neil McClendon was the camp pastor, and he kept making the statement over and over again throughout the week, and he simply said this, suffering is part of the deal. When you sign up to be a follower of Jesus, when you sign up and, and allow him to change your life, suffering becomes part of the deal. And so many times when things get difficult for us, when the plans that we have for our life, the plans that we have for our family, when our finances don't go as we planned, when the difficulties come, we think, what in the world is going on? I thought God was going to protect me and shield me from any, any difficulties. That's never been promised to you. You realize that? That's never been promised to you. Jesus, in fact, said, you will have tribulation. He says, in the world, John 16, you will have tribulation. Paul said to Timothy, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, they will be persecuted. And yet, as a Christian in the 21st century America, we forget what the Word of God has already told us about our lives. The suffering here mentioned refers to the difficulties and afflictions of everyday life that result from faithfulness to Christian principles. It's telling us that if you want to live for Jesus, you need to understand, you need to recognize, you need to expect that there will be others who stand against you. The enemy will always stand against you. But the tribulation he speaks of here is also a reference and extends to include that final period of intense affliction which will precede the establishment of the millennial kingdom. As we walk through the book of Revelation, we're going to see that there's going to be an intense period of tribulation that's going to usher in the kingdom of God in this millennial reign, this 1,000-year reign of the Lord Jesus here on earth. In verse 9, as he begins to explain this, John joins the word kingdom and patient endurance to the concept of tribulation. Kingdom here refers to the, the coming period of messianic blessedness. When Jesus will return, his kingdom will be grounded, and we will experience the blessing of God. While endurance here is the active patience required of the faithful. God's always called us to be faithfully enduring while living in this life. And so the order of these is very important. John did not make a mistake in the order that he put these terms and these concepts. 
the present is a time of tribulation. The kingdom is, a, is speaking of a future bliss to come. Therefore, what we as believers must do is exercise patient endurance in the present as we wait for Jesus to return. That's what John is saying he's doing. He's their brother, their partner in tribulation, in the kingdom, and in the patient endurance. What I love about what John says here is he doesn't just drop this instruction on his audience and say, now have fun working that out. What does he say? He says it much more clear. He says, I'm your brother and I'm your partner. He refers to himself as a brother and a partner. He, in other words, he's in the family and he's going through the same struggles with them. I don't know why it is that we as Christians sometimes forget this, many times forget this. We think that the difficulties that we're experiencing we're the only one experiencing those. It's like we, you remember the, um, um, the prophet Elijah? I had to think of the prophet's name for a second. You remember Elijah? Remember he stood there on Mount Carmel and he called fire down from heaven and he, and he, and he just obliterated the prophets of Baal and, and proved that God alone is God. There is no other God. And yet what we see in like the next chapter is he's running from Jezebel because she's, she's just declared, I will have your head. And now he's running from the queen. He's running from King Ahab. And he gets to a point where you're thinking, I'm the only one left. And he has this little pity party. And that's what we do at times. We think we're the only one in God's kingdom who's experiencing any sort of tribulation, any sort of suffering. And God tells us right here through the, John, through the Apostle John, he says, I am also in tribulation. Remember, I'm on Patmos. I'm exiled for the faith. I'm exiled. I'm away from people that I want to be in relationship with because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Jesus is with us in our troubles, and we have other brothers and sisters who are going through it as well. A brotherly partnership. We're not in this alone. John is in the family. And so we can be encouraged knowing that we're not alone in the fight. There is a brotherly partnership in the family of God. You see, when one suffers, we all suffer. And when one rejoices, we all rejoice. There's no such thing in the word of God as a lone ranger disciple. Jesus didn't call you to himself so that you would be by yourself. He calls you to himself so that you can be in fellowship with the family of God. There's beautiful images in the word of God that speak of the church. It's, it's pictured as the family, and it's also pictured as the household. It's pictured as the temple. You're one member of a big-membered family. You're one stone in a many-stoned temple. There's brotherly partnership. It can be experienced and enjoyed in the church. There's a second thing I want you to see here, and I... Need to hurry. Story of my life. I want you to see divine proximity. Look at verse 13. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. We go to verse 20, and Jesus explains what these lampstands are, and he says they're the seven churches. Very similar to the vision that Daniel saw in Daniel chapter 7. There the vision is of the coming of God's kingdom and Daniel saw God seating himself upon his throne and there in that image that vision as God the Father begins to set on his throne he is now being served by myriads of angels all around him and then verse 13 says this I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him 
Last week, as I shared with you, this description of Jesus speaks to his deity. What we see here in Daniel 7 is that he's coming. The Son of Man is coming before the Ancient of Days. Jesus, God the Son, is coming before God the Father. And this whole image here, this whole picture here, also with what we see in Revelation 1, it speaks to the fact that Jesus is God. Paul clarifies this in Colossians 1.19. He is the fullness of God. Later this phrase and other writings became fixed upon a messianic expression designating the heavenly savior. In fact, it was the title that Jesus most used of himself in the gospels, designated speaking of his person as well as his mission. And so here John's vision, in John's vision, Jesus is depicted as being present and moving among his churches. I, I just want you to picture that this morning. We are a local church. This is a message written to a local church. And what we see here is that Jesus is walking, standing in the midst of his church. Jesus is with us today. Jesus is present among us today. Jesus has promised his continued presence with his church. I mean, he said there just before he ascended to heaven, he says, I am with you always to the end of the age. We find many other similar promises throughout the New Testament of God and Jesus Christ being present in our lives, present in our churches. He never leaves us nor forsakes us. So here's the message. Christ followers do not worship and serve a well-meaning, heroic, religious martyr. No, we worship and we serve the one who laid down his life, the one who took it up again. We serve a God who is alive today. We serve a God who is strong today. We serve a God who is present today. The living Christ indwells his church and he leads and empowers them to continue his mission. We don't serve a God who is impotent. We don't serve a God who is powerless. We don't serve a God who has no ability to do anything. We don't serve a God of stone or gold or wood. We serve a living God who laid down his life and then took it up again. And now because he did that, he can do the same for us. So it doesn't matter. Listen to this. Because the Lord stands in our midst, it doesn't matter what storms may be raging outside because God is in the house with us. Remember the story in the Gospels in Mark chapter 4, the disciples are with Jesus, they get in the boat, they're going to cross the Sea of Galilee over to the other side, and Mark 5 I believe is when they're going to uh, uh, um, come into contact with the demoniac, the man who has many demons inside of him, remember that story? What happens on the sea as they're crossing, you remember? Storm comes up. Jesus is asleep in the bottom of the boat. He's exhausted. God is fully God. Jesus is fully God, and he's fully man, and so his humanity is exhausted. So he's sleeping in the bottom of the boat. As the storm is raging around, the disciples are flipping out, and they wake Jesus, and they say, Jesus, basically this, Jesus, do you not love us enough to calm the storm? Jesus stands up and says, you faithless generation, calms the storm. Understanding the, the picture we need to get there is that it doesn't matter what's going on around us. If Jesus is in the boat, if Jesus is in the house, if Jesus is in your life, it's enough. There's divine proximity pictured here in this as Jesus stands and walks among his churches. There's a third aspect to this comforting scene that I want to point out, and that's divine possession. Look at verse 16. In his right hand, he held seven stars. 
Just as Jesus is in proximity with his church, he's also in possession of his church. He's holding the seven stars. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4 and 5, Colossians chapter 1, we see this image of Jesus being the head of the church. Here John describes Jesus as holding in his right hand the seven stars. Verse 20 explains that these stars represent the angels of the seven churches. And so what does that mean, John? What are you talking about here? Seven stars representing seven angels of the seven churches. What is this all about? Well, the interpretation of this passage, this particular term, is a little difficult. Uh, it's the, the word angels is the word angelos in the Greek. It literally means angels. And so when we look at that and we try to understand what it means to the church, it's a little difficult because nowhere in the New Testament are we told that angels are in any sort of leadership structure with the church. And so what's going on here? How should we understand this? Well, there's several options. The simplest option is to look at the etymology or the usage of this word and how it kind of has changed over time. And it's been used elsewhere to refer to messengers. This word can, be, can speak of those who bring a message. What do angels a lot of times do in the, in the word of God? They bring messages, right? Even in this text, in the Revelation, we're going to see angels bringing messages. We've seen it in the first passage where God the Father gives this revelation to Jesus. Jesus gives it to his angel, and his angel gives it to John. And so angels are messengers. Another close view is that it refers to the pastor and elders of the churches. Uh, this particular view uses the phrase found in chapter 2, verse 20 that says that woman to argue that the angels are the pastors in the sense that they are somehow symbolically attached or married to the church. And so this particular pastor, Thyatira, there in that passage, is tolerating a sinful woman and or congregation. So the great Greek scholar A.T. Robertson makes the case that the view with, with the fewest difficulties is the view that it refers to pastors. So we're going to go with A.T. Robertson. Therefore, Jesus here pictured, is pictured as holding in his right hand the seven pastors of the seven churches. Now, we just parenthetically, let me just mention this. Seven pastors of seven churches, the Bible also speaks of plurality of elders. So just, it's just a reference to the pastors of the church. Don't carry the image further than it needs to be carried. Last week, I told you that God's right hand throughout the Bible, often refers to favor and authority. And so he's holding the churches with favor and authority, but it also speaks of control. That's where this possession comes in. Jesus is in control of his church. He's holding his church. It means, not, it means that no matter how evil, how abusive culture may be, Jesus is in possession of his church. It doesn't matter how uh, difficult Walking in faith may become, or what dangers may be present, Jesus is in possession of his church. He upholds it, he protects it, he provides for it, and he empowers his church. That's why when we sense God leading us to step out in faith and follow him in a new endeavor, whatever that may be, maybe it's a call to, like, like the Apostle Paul heard, to take the, the word of God over to Macedonia. You think, how in the world can I do that? It's dangerous over there. I can do it because God empowers me. I can do it because God provides for me. I can do it because God's going to protect me. As, as long as I'm in the will of God and the hand of God, I'm in a good place. Jesus is with us. Isn't that a comforting scene? Think about, I'm not the only one going through these struggles. 
to think about, even as I walk through difficulties and sufferings in my life, I am, I am with Jesus, and better yet, Jesus is with me. Not only am I walking in step with him, and he's walking in step with me, but bless God, he is holding me. I mentioned Isaiah 41.10 last week. That Jesus upholds us in his righteous right hand. Remember that fourth, young fourth grade boy running from the pack of bullies? He's scared to death. He's terrified. He, he, he's figuring, man, if they catch up with me, I'm going to have to fight a handful of guys. And he doesn't know what he's going to do next. But then all of a sudden, as he gets close to his house, he begins to cry out to his dad. His dad steps onto the porch, and all of a sudden, the boys scatter. You see, life is hard. Life is full of difficulties. It's full of tribulation and suffering. It's full of bullies that play for keeps. And left to ourselves, it can be discouraging and defeating. But here's what I want you to see in this comforting scene. When the bullies of life are running you down, Jesus steps onto the front porch and everything's okay. I love David's word in Psalm 18, 29. You'll see it in 2 Samuel 22 as well. He says, for, for by you, speaking to God here, for by you I can run against a troop and by my God I can leap over a wall. I can do anything with Jesus Christ. In the family of God, there's brotherly partnership. See, we're not alone. In the family of God, there's divine proximity. God is with us. And in the family of God, there's divine possession. God upholds us in his hand. Are you in the family of God today? Life seemed to be difficult for you. Life hard. Life is a fight. Life is a struggle. And sometimes you wonder, how am I going to make it through? How am I going to press on? How am I going to finish well? You can do anything with Jesus with you. But if you don't have Jesus with you, you can't do anything well. See, the greatest fight in all of our lives is the fight with sin. And you can't ever win that battle on your own. You can't ever win it. I've known Christians, many Christians over the years, myself even at times, thinking, man, I can win this fight. I can overcome sin in my life. I can, I can manage it. I can do it. I can be in control of it. No, you can't. You're a slave to sin, always a slave to sin, until Jesus steps in and cuts the shackles. This morning, some in this place, even before we receive and observe the Lord's Supper, some of us in this room as followers of Jesus, we need to lay down ourself. We need to lay down our flesh. We need to lay down our, our, our entitlement, our sense of thinking that we can't and we have to do things ourselves, and just lay them down and say, Lord Jesus, I can't do anything. I am helpless before my sin. I am helpless before you, but today I am faithing into you, and I am repenting of my sin. I need you to pick up the broken pieces of my life and put them back together, wherever you're at. Even as Christians, that needs to be true. You're not being saved again. You just need to come home. You just need to come home. And then there are others perhaps in this room, and as we prepare to receive the Lord's Supper, you should not, cannot take it this morning because you're not in relationship with Jesus. That's a meal that's exclusive to a follower of Jesus who's walking with Jesus. And so this morning, the greatest need in your life is to say yes to Jesus, to turn from sin and faith in to Him. This is where the Bible has such wonderful news. Good news is the Bible tells us that you're loved by God, you're designed by God, you're made for a perfect relationship with Him. That's the good news. You're just not some accident in this world. You're not some, some uh, substance that, some ooey substance that kind of crawled up out of the, the swamp and became something that you are today. That's not who you are. You are divinely created by God. 
The bad news is, is that beautiful design that God has placed in you has been broken because of sin. You are sinful and thus separated from God under the just judgment of a holy God. But the best news of all is that God the Son has paid the penalty so that you could be free. You can be cleansed of all sin through Jesus Christ. For me, that was April 24th, 1997, as an 18-year-old freshman at the University of Arkansas, a religious kid, by the way. Jesus changed my life on that day, not because I was a good person, not because I tried hard, not because I had enough Bible verses memorized. I taught Sunday school at the time. I didn't get me into heaven. So truth be told, I was probably a lousy Sunday school teacher. I got one kid stuck in a cave for about six hours and survived that. It's not about works. It's not about anything you do. It's about laying your life down before Jesus. This morning, as we prepare our hearts to receive this supper, I just want us to contemplate and kind of reflect upon our own lives. Where, where are you at today with the Lord? What's your life like? You walking with Jesus? You walking at a guilty distance? Or are you like that thief on the cross? Completely separated from God because of your sin. Lord Jesus, this morning we thank you that you are with us. God, I, we thank you today that this passage reminds us that even in the difficulties of life, you are present. You're more than able. You're a conqueror. Lord, I pray that we've been encouraged. I pray that we've been, our spirits have been lifted up. God, I pray that we've been empowered to press on in the fight, whatever it may be. God, help us to be hopeful today because of Jesus. Lord, as such, when we just reflect upon what you've done for us, the sacrifice that's been paid for us, Lord, I pray that we'd be willing and desirous to live lives that are holy and blameless before you. Lives that honor and worship you. Because, Lord, you're so worthy. God, I pray for every believer in this room this morning. Lord God, I pray that if we're walking, if anyone's walking at a guilty distance, that we'd come home. We wouldn't allow unconfessed sin. We wouldn't allow our own selfishness or disgruntledness, our own bitterness, because life is not working out like we had hoped it would. So some form or fashion, we're heaping that blame back upon you. God, I pray that we wouldn't, we wouldn't do that. But instead of God, we'd come home. Brokenness, repentance, seeking forgiveness. And God, I thank you that every time we do that, we will 100% of the time come face to face with the Jesus that says, welcome home. I've been waiting for you. I love you. I've been calling to you. I've been orchestrating things in your life to speak, to, to, to kind of point you in a certain direction. And I'm glad you're home. Lord, I pray for a student in this room, a child in this room, maybe an adult. Today needs to be the day of salvation for them. God, I pray they'd gloriously be saved this morning. Jesus, prepare our hearts to be ready to receive this supper.